Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Now and Then. I'm Heather Cox Richardson. And I'm Joanne Freeman. Today we've got kind of a summertime topic for you. We pondered what we wanted to talk about today. And here we are in August. Summer isn't over, but it's sort of looming the end of it, perhaps on the horizon. And we thought, wouldn't it be great in late summer to take you into a discussion of something that is not super serious. And so we decided that what we would like to discuss today is board games. The history of board games, what board games show and mean. And to be honest, there are a lot of really goofy board games. (laughs) So at any rate, we wanted to talk about board games and how they've evolved over time and what they actually can tell you about the United States at the time when they came out and also, in some cases, about the United States now. Well, and it's worth pointing out that for all the fact we started to talk about games in general, it turns out there are many, many different categories of games. So we narrowed it down to board games, and then it turns out that there are many, many different kinds of board games. So we're actually going to be talking about a specific kind of board game. And that's the kind of board game that has, if you will, a contest or a race from one point to another, and you want to be the winner. And that itself is a really interesting concept if you contrast it with the idea of, say, cooperative games, which are where you make teams and people try to work together to solve a mystery, for example, or games that are games of strategy that are not designed to be a race. These are racing games, and they do, in fact, tell us a lot about America. They do indeed. Now, I have to ask you, Heather, we have in front of us here a list of the top 11 best-selling board games right now on Amazon. I've only heard of a few, but I need to know, Heather, if you have heard of any of these either. So I I gather that the number one best-selling board game is Connect Four, which sounds like an old game to me, but I have no idea what it is. Oh, man. You know that one? Oh, yeah. Connect Four. And the reason it's busy right now, I think probably, is that there was on Twitter a video clip of a dog playing Connect Four. It's where it's a, it's a. <laughs> the dog can play it. I can too. <laughs> well, I, I kind of, I wasn't entirely convinced the dog was making good decisions, but, um, <laughs> but it's a, a stand in which you drop poker chips sort of into patterns to see if you can put four of them in a row without being stopped. Oh, okay. It's kind of fun, actually. It doesn't sound bad. The second one is Candyland, which I do remember playing. Do you remember that? There's like little gingerbread plastic men you move around. That's kind of in the vein of the ones we'll be talking about today, that you move around a board and go forward and go backward. Weirdly, I never played Candyland, and I am not sure that it was in my house 
as a kid, but I do know Candyland because I believe Candyland was invented by a woman who worked with children who were immobilized by polio. And it was wow. her it was her way of giving the children something to do and to give them the ability to move, even though they were at that time unable wow. to move. I love that. I have to say a lot of these games on here I don't know. I love the fact that one is bingo and the other is zingo with an exclamation point. I don't know what zingo is. One of the names on there we will be talking about later, and that is not surprisingly Monopoly. But maybe we should start with the one that actually I didn't necessarily know about before we began. And I was trying to think, rummaging through my mind to come up with something early American. And you know, I think they were playing with cards in early America, but as far as board games go, I was having a hard time thinking of anything in that realm. And as it ends up, there is something called the Game of Goose, which falls into the lines of what we've already talked about, that it sort of was a, a race game. I think there were 63 spaces and you did various things. You rolled die and you went ahead or backward. It's the basic format of a lot of games ever after. And just the themes changed or the, the topic or, you know, in one way or another, it could, you could be racing towards anything or away from anything. It was the format, but apparently it was very popular. It got first created in the late 15th century. So we're talking way back. And it began first in Spain and Italy. In the 16th century, it spread to England. And then not surprisingly, by the late 18th century, became American. And we have evidence that the Game of Goose was known about in early America. And I was laughing about this with Heather even before we began taping because it just reminds me, it's so modern in its way. Apparently, in 1798, the game was obviously available in Philadelphia because that year, Vice President Thomas Jefferson wrote to his daughter Martha Jefferson Randolph about a gift list that she had sent to Jefferson to bring back to her children. And one of the desired gifts was the game of goose. And Jefferson writes a letter back and says, all your commissions shall be executed, including the game of the goose, if we can find out what it is. <laughs> and what I love about that is, it's like every father in the world whose kid says, I want the super duper bubblegum shooter, right? And the father has to sort of decide, what is that? How do I know what that is? And here is Jefferson. Uh, okay, got it. Game of the Goose. I'm fighting Game of the Goose, which apparently he did. He said uh, later in a letter again to his daughter that um, the children, I am afraid, will have forgotten me. However, my memory may perhaps be hung on the game of the goose, which I am to carry to them. So they may forget me, but I'm going to redeem myself because I'm bringing them the game of the goose. What's interesting about the idea of a board game that involves die and racing is it says a lot about who would use it. So it doesn't necessarily have the same kind of negative connotations of gambling, for example, that you would have on cards that are held secretly. And it also doesn't have the connotations of needing to be extraordinarily educated to play them well, like Whist, for example, or Bridge, those card games that were popular about the same time. So it's the kind of game that you could see a family having or somebody wanting their kids to have because it teaches them basic math skills, but also doesn't endanger their souls, if you will. And the whole idea of those racing games then becomes a really easy way to create 
educational games where they teach people something. So oddly enough, on the one hand, you could say that these race games have a, a kind of democratic component to them because everybody is rolling the die and everybody's moving ahead or backward and you don't need special knowledge to play these games. You, you need patience and you need to know how to take turns. And yet, I think almost all of the games that we're talking about today, there's actually nothing really democratic about the premise of the game. They're all about racing and somebody wins, right? And so you're all on an even keel until someone, due to luck or chance or something, some last minute smart move ends up winning. So yeah, they're perfect to play with a family because you all start out in the same, it equalizes the family and- if you're all playing fairly, you know, these are the sorts of moments when a father loses or a mother loses or a kid always wins. And I'm sure most people listening have some kind of a memory of the weird kind of equalizing dynamic of playing board games. That whole idea of using a race game to inculcate various ideas about a society has stayed with us ever since. And I had to laugh when I was reading about the game of Goose by thinking about all the games that we had as kids that were designed to teach us one thing or another, not all of which we loved. And what really jumped to mind, and I'm so happy that I set you up for this, Joanne, is that my father, who in the 1970s was very concerned about the environment, he was an early environmentalist, brought home a game called the Game of Smog, <laughs> do you know <laughs> do you know the great beauty of that is that nobody had the heart to throw it out uh, when he was alive and certainly not after he died and many 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 years later it's still in in my parents home and many 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 years later i came down and found that my, at that point, grown niece and her friends were playing the game of smog. And she's like, we're learning all kinds of cool stuff here. <laughs> Literally at least 50 years after it had wow. come home and never been opened. That's hilarious and also interesting. It's going to relate to something we're going to talk about in a little bit, which is that, first of all, I do think if a game is too teachy-preachy, that probably kids are going to walk away from it. But I also think it's an obvious point, but over time, and particularly if you're talking about a lapse of decades, the sort of ethos changes enough and young people have a different culture and different expectations that things that might have been totally horrific or nerdy to you when you were a kid, like in this case, are cool. You know, the environment matters a lot. And here's the game of smog. So you can never <laughs> quite tell. I'm sorry. It still cracks me up. The game of smog. I know. I know. <laughs> it's totally true. The idea of using games to reflect a society and also to instruct people in how to behave really is the whole central idea of board games, really encapsulated by things like the game of life or the game of Monopoly or any of the games that we're going to be talking about that reflect the growing concept of both democracy and also capitalism. So early on in the United States, people began to imitate the game of goose and to produce their own variations on it. And as early as 1812, one of the variations that was produced was called the Mansion of Happiness. By the mid-19th century, the Mansion of Happiness had become a popular American game. And how it takes you from the beginning of the game to happiness is going to evolve through American history as that game changes. And many people are going to know the way it's going to come out as the game of life. So the Mansion of Happiness originally meant that you would move through a mansion and you would get help 
from moral spaces, and those moral spaces would have piety, honesty, sobriety, and gratitude. And then you would be thrown backward by vice spaces. So you get thrown backward by audacity, cruelty, immodesty, or ingratitude. And what jumps out to me about that is how much it echoes what Louise May Alcott did in Little Women, where the women, the girls at that point, make their own game in which they move forward through life according to John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, where they move forward or they move backward. It's so much of that moment. You mentioned a little earlier, Heather, the sort of moral component that these games are sometimes teaching you. The fact that you have these qualities here that are the key to the game and that you could play that game and it would be a game and it would not feel necessarily preachy, right? That you were playing a game, you were moving forward and backward with a toy, you know, someone wins, someone loses. And yet what you're aiming for is, oh, I hope I get honesty and not audacity (laughs) as you're advancing on the board. But certainly the, the existence of this game very much feels of the moment when it came out, the sort of mid 19th century It does. And the reason I mentioned Louise May Alcott, who wrote Little Women in 1868, or at least it was a bestseller in 1868, is because in that very period, we have the rise of Milton Bradley. So by 1860, Milton Bradley, who was about 23 years old then, a man from Springfield, Massachusetts, had produced a lithograph of Abraham Lincoln, but it was a lithograph of Abraham Lincoln without a beard. So it did very well at first, but as soon as Lincoln grew a beard, it became outdated. So after he did the Lincoln portrait, he began to experiment with board games. And he took a look at that old mansion of happiness and decided that he should craft his own new game that he called the checkered game of life. So we have a direct line here from the goose to mansions of happiness, to the game of life. And as he described it, he said, I, Milton Bradley, have invented a new social game. Interesting words, social game. In addition to the amusement and excitement of the game, it is intended to forcibly impress upon the minds of youth the great moral principles of virtue and vice. Look at that. Amusement, excitement, Moral principles, all in one bundle. Now, Bradley's game, the the checkered game of life, was longer than the sort of goose games we've been talking about. It had 100 spaces. Like the Mansion of Happiness, there were half good spaces and half bad spaces. But in Milton Bradley's version, each player began in infancy and, if they were lucky, could either advance towards positive outcomes near the top of the board, like happy old age, or wealth, or bad ones, like prison or suicide, that's a little shocking, actually. That's kind of morality slapping you in the face there. Regardless of what we think about the bad outcomes on that board game, it ended up being a huge success. It sold 43,000 copies by the end of its first year on the market And this is happening as the Civil War is intensifying. Maybe that's a time when people are particularly eager to escape into games. I don't know. But it did very well. And in the end, Milton Bradley became a leading proponent of the kindergarten movement. One of the things that I love about this early version of life, though, is that 
one of the key social changes that happens with the Civil War is that people stop believing that they can control the outcome of their lives, that they can go in and sort of be these great individuals and change everything because the war shows them with the advent of, you know, more than two million men fighting either in the army or the navy, that you could be the most moral guy in the world and you can't see the artillery shell coming at you and you can't have any influence over whether or not the railroads are moving. This really is reflected in the literature and how the literature goes from really heroic individuals that you have before the Civil War to these sort of mass images after the war that you see in places like Sister Carrie, where the hero of Sister Carrie basically is never in control of anything. I mean, his entire life gets changed when an unexpected breeze blows a safe door shut. So that change from we're in control of our lives to we're really not is reflected. No control. Yeah, That's right. It's just whatever the dice is going to roll. And you're not really responsible for how the dice rolls. You're either going to be lucky enough to have wealth and a happy old age, or you're going to end up in prison or killing yourself as the figure in Sister Carrie does at the end of the book. Oops, that was a spoiler. But I suspect anybody (laughs) who was going to run out and read Sister Carrie already has. One of the lessons here is that certain board games become enormously popular, not just because they reflect escapism or they reflect a way to spend time, but they feel to people as if they might be reflecting part of their lives. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity— But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. For more Cafe History content, check out Time Machine, a weekly column by our editorial producer, David Kurlander, inspired by each Now and Then episode. You can receive the Time Machine articles through the free Cafe Brief email. Sign up at cafe.com slash brief. One of the really interesting things about board games to me is that on the one hand, they're kind of 
mindless. But on the other hand, they're really imprinting ideas on you in one way or another. You just may not realize it. That to me is fascinating. That's right along the lines of what we're talking about here with the various people inventing these games. But it's a sneaky kind of imprinting of ideas because you play the game and your friends play the game and it prints on you all of these ideas that make perfect sense and probably even uses or reflects common anxieties on the parts of kids so that they're they're like in the mix and they want to take part in it. It's a really, games are a really interesting conscious and unconscious way of reckoning with any society, but here we're talking about American society. Absolutely. You know, in 1959, Milton Bradley had had died in 1911, but executives from the company ask a freelancer, a, a guy who had invented toys and games himself, a man named Reuben Klamer, to come up with a new version of life for its 100th anniversary. And so he updated it to change it from being the checkered game of life to being the game of life in 1960. And in place of that moralism of the original game, now there was a plastic spinning wheel in the game board. Think of the technology of the post-war years. They've actually been able to manufacture a plastic spinning wheel in the middle of the game. And the life developments that got you toward your future were things like adopting a girl and boy, collecting presents, jury duty, lose a turn. (laughs) And at the end of the day, the final space is not wealth and a happy old age. The final space is that you will be a millionaire tycoon. I just love that. It's so wonderful. It's so of that moment. Well, and also of that moment, Joanne, was the jingle. The jingle. So the jingle sounds very much like Another popular image at the time, which was the monkeys, the last train to Clarksville. And I wonder if there's anybody on this podcast (laughs) other than me who would like to sing that. Now, I, I cannot sing the entire thing. I will confess readily that as we began talking about this and deciding what we were going to talk about, which games, that conversation for me was on the one hand, a matter of thinking of games, and on the other hand, in the back of my brain, various jingles playing endlessly. They're just in there. And this was one of those cases. It was like, of course, we're going to talk about the game of life. And what I had before sitting down here was the game of life, the game of life. You will learn about life when you play the game of life. That was what was in my head. Now, I listened. I went to find the commercial so that I could be well-informed for you, the listening public. And it does kind of have this weird, wacky, one of our producers actually is the one who said it kind of sounds like the monkey's last train to Clarksville. It's like one kid says, I got a car. And the chorus says, you got a car. (laughs) Someone says, I'll be a star. You may go far. Get revenge. You'll get revenge. I've got revenge. You got revenge. Milton Bradley makes the best games in the world. So play the game of life. That's life. It's kind of wacky and kind of 60-ish, actually, very much of that moment. You could be famous, become a star. You could get a fancy car or become a millionaire tycoon. That's very much a particular kind of a game that, as you just said, Heather, it's not piety. Piety is not on that board. No, but what is, is a heteronormative, upwardly mobile, largely white society. 
it mirrored the way people who purchased that game wanted their children to think about their futures, which is one of the reasons we're going to get such a crisis when, in fact, those kids do go off to college and discover that the world is not the way their parents wanted them to think about it. So we're, we're going to end up with the 1960s and the 1970s. But the game of life was, in that period, almost a snapshot of what the 1950s and the 1960s looked like to a certain group of people. Think about the ultimate message there, too. Just as we're saying, these games don't require knowledge, they require a little luck, they require knowing how to take turns. And the ultimate point of this game is anyone can be a millionaire. You can play this game and at the end, poof, I'm a millionaire. As though that's a, a goal, an achievable goal that, you know, you're talking about every time you play the game. Well, it's something desirable. You're not going to see that in a moral game from the middle of the 19th century. Oh, no, century. it's desirable, but it's also being made as though it's familiar and achievable. And achievable, that's right. And interestingly, when you put it that way, I was going to joke and say that it wasn't a very popular game, but the fact that it sold at least 50 million copies of that game, remember America today has about 330 million people in it, that that idea that everybody can move their way up to to become a millionaire tycoon, I mean, it's, it permeates. In contrast to that, though, we have my favorite game, as in I hate to play it. I'm, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. I was the youngest kid, so I always lost. And it goes, it's interminable. And I know that there's a whole bunch of listeners out there who know exactly what game we're going to mention, yeah. having set it up that way. And that's Monopoly. Now, when you said your favorite, you're talking in high sarcasm. No, I'm talking about the history of it. Oh, the history is your favorite, but the game is not. The game I, I never liked at all, but the history is fabulous because the game of Monopoly, as we know it, actually had its roots not in the more recent past and, and not even in the 20th century. It has its roots in the single tax movement of the late 19th and early 20th century. And the argument behind that single tax movement, which was associated with Henry George, was a, a reformer out of New York, was that, you know, everybody in the late 19th century is trying to figure out why some people are rich and some people are poor. And when I say everybody's trying to figure it out, there's all these best-selling books and there's columns in newspapers and everybody's like, well, wait a minute, why do we have these extremes of wealth and how can we adjust them? Because we know it's not okay to have Andrew Carnegie own everything and his workers own nothing. And yes, I'm exaggerating, but that's the theme. So how do you fix that in a way that's fair and a way that doesn't destroy the whole idea that, that everybody in America is created equal? So what do you do? And they come up with all kinds of different schemes. But Henry George's plan was to impose a tax on land. And the idea behind that was he maintained that the reason that there were such enormous inequalities of wealth in late 19th century America was because of the price of land. And his argument was this, dirt is just dirt. Land doesn't matter. Land is just land no matter where you are. I mean, with some limitations, obviously, you don't want to have swamp land, but land is land. But what makes land valuable are the people that live on it. So an acre of land in New York City is much more valuable at that time than an acre of land in Nebraska. So in order to even out the inequalities in society, the way to do that is to recognize that an acre of land in New York is valuable only because of the social value 
that has been ascribed to it by all those people who live on it. So what you need to do is tax that creation of value. And if you tax that creation of value so that an acre of land in New York was no more valuable than an acre of land in Nebraska, you could get rid of the extremes of wealth. It was called the single tax movement, and it was extremely popular, but it was also hard to understand. So this woman named Elizabeth McGee was born in Macomb, Illinois in 1855, and she became a follower of Henry George, and she wanted to help people understand how it worked. So she invented a game called the Landlord's Game. Now that I've explained that the theory behind this is that where your land happens to be is random and it's only given value by what's on it, all of a sudden monopoly makes sense, right? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, here is McGee describing what you just described, Heather. She describes the game as being a practical demonstration of the present system of land grabbing with all its usual outcomes and consequences it might well have been called the game of life, as it contains all the elements of success and failure in the real world, and the object is the same as the human race in general seems to have, which is the accumulation of wealth. So she had two sets of rules for her game to make that point. She had an anti-monopolist set of rules in which all players received payouts from properties, and a monopolist set in which the goal was to create monopolies and crush your opponents. So in her mind, you do the former game, you play the former game, and it's making the point that she supports here of Henry George, or you play the monopolist version, which shows the downside of the current way of people focusing on money in a way that highlights unfairness and inequity. The version of the game that became Monopoly is actually not the same as her landlord's game. And we didn't inherit the much more communal version of it. We inherited the let's get all the money and we're going to have a big winner version. And we'll explain how we got there. But I do think it says something that is the smallest, youngest kid in a family. I hated Monopoly because I always, always, always lost. And that was what she was trying to show with her Monopolist version, that that the game was rigged against the, the weaker people in the game. And so in a way, I was the perfect candidate to play the historical version. And I suspect there's a lot of people like that because you lost that game the minute somebody bought Boardwalk and Park Place. And then the game went on for like six more hours where you, get, where you got crushed into the dust and you ended up, you know, I don't know, promising you were going to do that. That's right. That's right. <laughs> promising you were going to do the, ga- the dishes forever and all that kind of right. stuff. right. It's unfair. And that idea is parallel to what happens with that game, which I find fascinating. So it actually makes me angry. Me too. Me too, because the game was rigged. So what happens is the landlord's game does minorly well, but she never attempted to brand the game because she wanted people to have it. And in 1932, a guy who was out of work, a guy from Philadelphia named Charles Darrow, played a version of the game at a friend's house, and he created his own version of it. And in 1935, he sold it to Parker Brothers. So Parker Brothers then goes to McGee and asks to buy her patent on the thing for $500 without telling her about- Yeah. Without (laughs) telling her about Darrow's version of the game, they'd been buying up any patents of- 
similar games so they could bring out their version of Monopoly. She sold the patent, and two days after she sold it, she wrote to the founder of Parker Brothers and, and said she hoped that her political and moral messages would remain central to the branding of the game. And she said, farewell, my beloved brainchild. I regretfully part with you, but I am giving you to another who will be able to do more for you than I have done. I shall do all I can to add to your success and fame, which will in some measure add to my own. I charge you, do not swerve from your high purpose and ultimate mission. Remember, the world expects much from you. Now I have to give the nasty ending. So Darrow's version, of course is an instant runaway success. It sells 278,000 copies in its first year, more than 1,750,000 the next year. And McGee, who by this point is the headmistress of the Henry George School in Clarendon, Virginia, obviously to say that she is not amused is to put it lightly. She knows of the quasi-theft of her game by Darrow. And of course, he becomes credited as the creator of Monopoly. The Washington Post commented on this at that time and said, McGee originally intended her game to popularize the single tax principles of Henry George. Ironically, its present success is due not to this moral, but to its opposite, the competitive instincts of back-to-normalcy America. So indeed, the sort of ultimate painful irony that the precise thing that she was preaching against comes back and robs her of credit for her game and the profit from this slightly reconfigured version of her game. Monopoly has now been licensed locally in more than 103 countries, printed in more than 37 languages, and as of 2015, it was estimated that the game has sold 275 million copies worldwide. So a takeoff of Monopoly that we wanted to cover is called Chutzpah. I had a mixed response to what I'm about to talk about here, and I want to hear your thoughts about this too, because I think it actually is right in line with what we're talking about, reflecting society and, for example, why those 20-year-olds love playing the game of smog, which was not exciting to you. So we had this game of Chutzpah, which emerged in 1967, and it was meant to be a Jewish version of Monopoly. It sort of converted itself tongue-in-cheek. Now, my memory of the game, I still have it somewhere in my apartment in the back of a closet. I remembered it was like Monopoly, but it was funny, and we played it all the time, and it sort of felt like, you know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Look at us playing Jewish Monopoly. You know, that was sort of my, my take on it. But when you read a little bit about how the game adapted itself. Now, however many decades later, I'm going back and learning about it. I was a little horrified. I have now changed my thinking about chutzpah. So the Jewish version of Monopoly had a bank, but it was called the pushka, the kitty. Rather than going to jail, you experienced Soros. So there's a lot of Yiddish in the game, which I actually kind of love. But as far as you winning things or buying things or having the money to do things... Players could land on squares offering vacations in Miami or the Catskills, sleepaway camps, a nose job, a mink stole, a bar mitzvah, a gold-plated hoo-ha mahjong set, joining a country club, which was not something that a lot of Jews could do at the time, or a college education. Now, 
as I was rereading this and thinking about this in preparation for today, what I did not have in my head was, wait, you can roll the dice and get a nose job? And that's supposed to be, you know, granted it was aimed at Jews and Jews are playing it, but that does not sit well with Joanne in 2022. You know, I, I Joanne in whatever 1970-something year who was playing this honestly just didn't think about it very much. And so it's interesting, just even in my own personal experience, that I am now not as pleased with this game as I was before. I find certain aspects of it funny and other aspects of it vaguely offensive. Well, for what it's worth, I'd never heard of it. And when I was looking through our notes and looking it up, I think it's racist as hell. I mean, I I am horrified. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. I'm trying to think of what I would have thought had I seen it in in the 1960s. I think what it would have done, I think it would have made me think that Jews were totally different from me. Totally different and focused on money in a different way. Well, what jumps out to me is the less money than the the cultural trappings, the mink coat and the trips to Miami or whatever it was you said. That's something that was absolutely alien to Heather in Maine. And I would have thought that, like, who are these people? I would have nothing at all in common with them, which is bonkers when you think about the fact that my closest friends now are Jewish, you know. But at the time, it would have seemed like these are these are somehow alien beings. That's what I keep going back to. So the, the game is reflecting post-war American Jewish bourgeoisie. And all of these things, a, a mink stole, membership in a country club, all of these things that Jews at that point are seeking, some of which they couldn't necessarily have had before. All of these things, in a sense, are markers of a sort. I think Jews playing this game back in the day would have understood the meaning and humor of that, but also wouldn't have been offended at it, even though it's a game, as you put it so nicely and bluntly, Heather, it feels racist as heck. Like, I really? I landed on nose job. I mean, it's like every cliche in the world, it's stunning to me because this is my personal experience that I'm I'm looking at the difference between being a kid in the 70s, the early 70s and thinking one thing and being the adult me now and thinking, holy smoke, how did I not see all of this? It really shows you how games and the times can change so dramatically, even in the course of a lifetime, that I absorbed whatever I was absorbing in the 70s and now I, I really can't swallow it. And then there is Mystery Date. Mystery Date. Which I confess, I don't think I had heard of either when you mentioned it. At all? Maybe it's one of those things that was on the horizon somewhere. I certainly never played it. And when we were looking at what we would talk about, we were killing ourselves laughing over Mystery Date. You played it, right, Joanne? I played it. I did not own it. <laughs> that sounds like you played it like in an underground, like, here's where we go kind to play I Mystery did. Date. <laughs> I kind of did. I think it was like a marriage and dating oriented game, and I can't imagine my parents buying it for me. But it was at friends' houses that I played Mystery Date. And of course, I remember the theme song, which is how this came back, right? What game should we talk about? The game of life, Monopoly. <laughs> and I say, Mystery Date. <laughs> That's exactly how it came up. That's right. What is the theme it's song totally- again? Open the door to your mystery date. (laughs) Mystery date. Are you ready for your mystery date? 
Mystery Date, the thrilling new Milton Bradley game of romance and mystery that's just for you. And that's the game, right? The game is, again, there's pieces on a board. You roll die, you move around from space to space, and in different spaces you collect different accessories or outfits or something so that you're dressing yourself up for some kind of an occasion. And then at a certain point, you open a door to see who your date is, and you pray that you have gotten dressed up in the right way so that you match whatever it is your date is planning to do. So there's like a date dressed up in a tuxedo. He's clearly going to a formal dance. If you're dressed up in duds carrying a bowling ball, it's not going to work out for you. And there was a formal dance date, a bowling date, a beach date, a skiing date, and a date who was known at the time as the dud. (laughs) And so it was a game of dressing yourself up to please the guy behind the door and then failing if you didn't please him. He decided the evening and you were hoping to figure out the right things to wear so that he would be happy and you would go off and he would be your perfect mystery date. And kind of like with chutzpah, you know, thinking back to this, I'm like, holy smoke. (laughs) You know, what what is that game teaching me, right? I never had two thoughts about the fact that, you know, well, you got to find the right things to wear. And of course you want the best mystery date. What's the issue with the dud? There were versions, apparently, of Mystery Date because, you know, they could keep updating it with different versions of the hunky men who you're supposed to date. I think the initial dud was like dressed up in ratty clothes and seemed kind of messy and, you know, unkempt. Given the option, I don't want any of the formal dance, bowling, beach, or skiing options. So I'm like, sure, I'd give a shot at the dud because the other four are out. So <laughs> I'm sitting there looking at that thinking we're probably talking someone who goes to the library. Well, I was going to say, maybe know? he's carrying books. <laughs> if he's right. carrying books, I'm going with him. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I'm not, I'm not going to want to go with the, you know, and all of the images, formal dance man and, you know, beach man, ski man, they're just the exact you know, Ken doll version. It reminds me of, I don't know if you were part of this, and you might have been, when Russell Johnson, who played the professor on Gilligan's Island, died a few years back, I got a whole bunch of sort of underground messages from other women going, am I the only one who had a crush on him? (laughs) (laughs) No, I was not part of that. But it does really attempt to impose on women who might not fall into the 1950s, 1960s mold, a way of looking at their romantic options that is really circumscribed. You know, if your option is the skiing date, the beach date, the bowling date, or the formal date, and anybody else is a dud, you're making really clear assumptions about what you think is an appropriate way for women to behave and to dress. It's assuming, it's taking away any chance for, like like we were just saying, the reading man, you know, the, the, the professor, the whatever. It's, there are no options other than these options. And I was certainly not the only kid playing that game and thinking, I don't fit into that. Yeah. I don't fit. Now, I have to say it's worth noting that all of the dates on Mystery Date are white. And yet look at the time. It's released in 1965, which is right at that cusp where we're going to go from the proper girls to the girls that are breaking all the rules. 
you can see here not only the attempt to draw lines around the way women behaved, but also as this game continues to sell into the 60s and into the 70s, an attempt really to, to try and make sure women don't start to go with the hippie movement and to, you know, to burn their bras and do all the things that are going to make them unattractive to the bowling date, the beach date, the skiing date, and the formal date. I mean, you don't have here the protest, the Vietnam War date. (laughs) (laughs) Although think how much, think how much fun we could have writing that. Oh, it's true. We could make up some great dates that would be of the time. We could totally do a historical game like that. We could. We totally could, where you do the the mystery date for each era. And the one that would <laughs> jump to mind for me is like every time you watch Gone with the Wind, which was the movie was produced in 1939, you look at it and you think, who would choose Ashley Wilkes over Rhett Butler, right? But in the at the time, that was what you wanted, a man who didn't work with his hands, who was very cultured, very mild-spoken, thoughtful. Yeah, I didn't actually see it until I taught it in graduate school and obviously was not a huge fan. And I remember thinking, wait a minute, Ashley Wilkes? He's the hero? Like, I know, like how did that happen in the mid-1980s? So you think about the way that what society suggests is an appropriate match has changed so dramatically over time. I have to add in, only because I can't believe this went into my head, the early American version of Mystery Date. <laughs> so obviously the the desirable dates, the dance date and the ski date and the bowling date, those all would have been very stable, settled people. There would only be a handful of careers that would be acceptable. What's interesting to me about that is who would have been the dud date? And I think that's pretty clear. That would have been a person, and there was even a name for it at the time. That person was known as, quote, a mushroom gentleman. A mushroom gentleman was someone you didn't know where his background was. He was growing up, no roots, in the dark. Who the heck was he? You didn't want to trust that person. If Mystery Date was created in 1798, the bad guy would be mushroom gentleman. <laughs> That's that would great. represent. That's yeah. great. He's not part of a community. You don't know his background. For all you know, he's a con man. Exactly. That, I love that. Yeah. It, it kind of sums up so much in two words. We already are partly on our way to creating mystery date for other moments in time. History mystery date. Ooh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So the the fun of all this has been looking at how this concept of racing to beat somebody says a lot about different eras in American history in which they made those and what the ultimate goal was. What are you racing that kind for? Of, in that kind of a race game. Like I say, that's only one of the many kind of games there were. But the idea that you're trying to beat somebody to a happy old age or to a gazillion dollars or to the beach date <laughs> says a lot about America. It does. And it's it's just an interesting kind of mind game where every time you sit down to play mystery date, you're just thinking, who's going to be? Can I get the good date? Or you sit down to play one of these other board games, Life or Monopoly, and you're thinking, you know, or the mansion of happiness. I want, I want, I want, I want to get to this. And if you grow up with that, 
if you grow up with, you know, every time you sit down to play a game, that's the ultimate goal. In some part of your consciousness, that just becomes a good thing, an automatically good thing. And it really isn't going to be till you're an adult and you start thinking about these things that you might start to undo some of the sort of autopilot assumptions that get planted in your head, like the idiotic jingles from the 70s that will never leave my head, that get planted in your head and you don't realize they're there until you question them. And I always loved when we were playing board games, the anarchist who's like at the end of the game, you know, well, well, I won. And the anarchist is like, really? I thought I won. Look, I got all the pieces that were under a half an inch high, or I got, I got everything Monopoly. that was, it's, I can, exactly, exactly. The people who really thought, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I am going to outside the box, but they were usually not the ones that were the official winners in those games, which says something about what board games do. And says something about the different ways in which people can play them. Our conversation continues for members of Cafe Insider. Heather and I take you behind the scenes of each episode in a special segment of Now and Then that we call Backstage. So join us backstage and get an inside look at the thoughts we're wrestling with as we prep for our weekly conversations. Head to cafe.com slash history to join. That's cafe.com slash history. That's it for this episode of Now and Then. If you like what we do, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. Your hosts are Joanne Freeman and Heather Cox Richardson. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The editorial producer is David Kurlander. The audio producer is Matthew Billy. The Now and Then theme music was composed by Nat Wiener. The CAFE team is Adam Waller, David Tattashore, Sam Ozerstaten, Noah Azalai, and Jake Kaplan. Now and Then is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. <laughs>